Over the years, if Calvary Chapel, if the Calvary Chapel movement had a theme verse, it would be Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Pastor Chuck would quote this verse to stress his dependence on the Holy Spirit. God's work is accomplished not by human strength or ingenuity, but by the influence of His Spirit. If I heard it once, I heard it a million times, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. But it's interesting to study that verse in its context, to delve into the circumstances that first provoked that statement. When we do, it gives us greater insights, and that's what we want to do tonight, beginning here in Zechariah chapter 4. Now, the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. Now, recall, God gives to Zechariah the prophet a series of eight visions, and they all come on the same night, February the 15th, 519 B.C., Zechariah has already seen four visions, the horses, the horns, the measuring line, and then in chapter 3, the trial of Joshua the high priest, the religious authority. And quite frankly, it has worn him out. He is exhausted. The prophet is so fatigued, he's fallen asleep in his own dream. It could be that he's fallen asleep and he's being woken up in his dream. The angel has to come and has to stir him. There's another vision on the horizon. And it's no accident this fifth vision comes at a point of his own physical exhaustion. I think God is teaching us something in that. That when he does his greatest work, it's when we are at our weakest. That the power that God uses to accomplish his purposes originates in his spirit, not in us. Now the focus shifts to the civil authority of the day, Governor Zerubbabel and his building the temple. Remember, as a priest, Joshua needed access to God. That's what's important for a priest, access to God. That's why in chapter 3 we're told of his cleansing. Whereas Zerubbabel is tasked with service for God. He's to rebuild the temple. Thus, chapter 4 discusses the work of and its means, how God wants him to get the job done. And understand, both visions, both interests are important to us. For the Christian life is also about two things. It's about access to God, then service for God. First and foremost, God has given us access. He wants to have fellowship with us. But that fellowship also involves our service for him. He wants us to work in ways that Bring Him glory that rely on His Spirit and not on ourselves. Verse 2, And He said to me, What do you see? And so I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Now, Zechariah tells us what he sees, but how it actually looked to Zechariah is hard to tell. To untangle this vision, note at the center of the vision is the traditional seven-branch Hebrew lampstand or the menorah. And it's most likely this was the menorah in the temple, for it was made of solid gold. The menorah was always 
It has always been a symbol of the nation Israel. Even today, a giant menorah sits outside Israel's parliament building, the Knesset, in West Jerusalem. The Old Testament predicted that the Jews would be a light unto the Gentiles. So Zechariah, he sees this gold menorah, and it's flanked by two olive trees. These trees feed the menorah with olive oil. And Zechariah sees an elaborate feeder system that brings the oil from the two trees to its seven lamps. And here's where the details are up for interpretation. A collection bowl sits on top of the menorah. How it was actually situated on top of the menorah, we're not sure. But it feeds the lamps with olive oil through a series of pipes. The menorah burned the olive oil. That's what brought the light. It comes to the the lights through a series of pipes. And whether we have seven single pipes running to each lamp or whether it's seven pipes feeding each of the seven lamps or 49 pipes total, again, we're not sure. Either way, the trees are fueling the menorah with the oil. Verse 4. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Remember, Zechariah was not only a prophet, he was also a priest, and so he was aware of the temple ceremonies, especially those involving the menorah. He knew it was ordinarily the priest's job to replenish the oil in the lamps. But in this vision, the lamps are being fueled supernaturally. No priest is involved here. The olive trees are tapped in their dripping oil right into the bowl. Zechariah asked, what does this mean? One thing you notice about Zechariah, he certainly wasn't timid. He asked the angel three times in this chapter to explain what he sees. Perhaps he senses the vital importance of this vision. Well, then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And so he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Throughout the scripture, olive oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The oil from the olives lubricates and softens. It soothes and heats and heals. It lights and warms. It refreshes and invigorates. It polishes and it shines, all of which the Holy Spirit does spiritually in the life of the Christian. Olive oil for the Holy Spirit is certainly a beautiful symbol. And God is here telling Zechariah in this vision that if the temple is to be rebuilt and the nation restored, it won't be done through his brains or through his brawn, but through a work of the Holy Spirit. And here is the lesson for God's people in every era. Human know-how can never fuel the light of God. A dynamic witness always requires the work of the Holy Spirit. It's no surprise that in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John sees seven golden menorahs. He's told they represent the seven churches. Since Jesus told his followers to be the light of the world, how appropriate that the church then be represented as a lampstand. And we too are fueled, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I've heard it said, if God removed his spirit out of the world, about 95% of what the church is doing 
would continue unhindered. Sadly, that's true, and I think it's shame on us. Today's church is notorious for substituting programs for power, gimmicks for grace, higher education for divine wisdom, pulpit training for spiritual anointing, marketing techniques for spiritual persuasion. We're depending on our own flesh rather than trusting in God's power. And it doesn't take long for us to become as fatigued and as burned out as Zerubbabel. He had been faithful to the task, but he lacked the fuel of the Holy Spirit. The work had proven to be too much. You see, all the world's elbow grease is no substitute for the oil of God's Spirit. Effort without energy equals exhaustion. Fire without fuel only produces burnout. Remember, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Verse 7, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What an assuring word to a discouraged Zerubbabel. God's Spirit will help him overcome the obstacles, complete the practical, and provide a spectacle. You see, the challenge facing Zerubbabel in reconstructing the temple was as formidable as moving a mountain. The governor had come home with scant provisions with a few workers. What will his skeleton crew really be able to accomplish? Zerubbabel's task of rebuilding God's temple seemed about as impossible as moving a mountain. Yet if he trusts in the Holy Spirit, his mountain will become a plain. God's Spirit is into leveling mountains, even in your life. And notice Zerubbabel's task involves the hands-on, the practical. God's Spirit isn't just interested in spiritual matters, but he also wants to impact the practical in our lives. Here, his involvement is key to a construction project, the capstone, which is basically the trim work, the final stages. He promises that Zerubbabel, he'll complete these things if he relies on the Holy Spirit. The temple certificate of occupancy won't be the result of man's endurance, but the Spirit's intervention. And then finally, this all ensures a spectacle. The odds were so stacked against Zerubbabel's success, everyone realized that the credit for rebuilding the temple belonged to God alone. This is why they shout, grace, grace to it. A temple rising from the ashes was obviously a work of God's grace. When the Spirit is at work, all the glory goes to God and not to us. It's God's grace, not man's grit, that gets accentuated. You see, everyone knew that the glory for what had happened belonged to God, not Zerubbabel. And then he says in verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? We're told in Haggai chapter 2, and you remember Haggai and Zerubbabel were contemporaries. They worked together on rebuilding the temple. We're told in Haggai 2 that when the temple was under construction, the old geezers, the old guys, 
who remembered the beauty and the grandeur of Solomon's temple. They had, those guys that had been around to see Solomon's temple. They mocked. They criticized the smaller, cheaper, less ornate version of the temple built by Zerubbabel. This rebuilt temple compared to Solomon's temple looked like a hut in comparison. Yet here God answers the critics. Don't despise the day of small things. Hey, understand, the Lord and the large don't always go together. See, we have the tendency of thinking that God is always into largesse. The more, the more divine. We assume that God doesn't work in small, in silent, in subtle ways. J. Vernon McGee wrote of this passage in Zechariah. He said, we Americans are impressed with the big and brassy. We like, our, we like our Christian work to be a success story. And we measure success by the size of the building and the crowds that come to it. Well, I am becoming more and more convinced that the Lord is working in quiet ways and in quiet places today. I certainly agree. Perhaps God has you doing a small work by human standards. You disciple a single person. The two of you meet for coffee every week. You teach a Bible study to just a handful of kids. Maybe you pastor a small congregation. Don't despise the day of small things. Who knows what great thing God is doing behind the scenes. Perhaps you're plowing a field or holding together a portion of the kingdom of God that in years to come will somehow be the key to a glorious harvest. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, for lack of a nail, the shoe was lost. For lack of a shoe, the horse was lost. For lack of a horse, the rider was lost. For lack of a rider, the war was lost. All for the lack of a nail. The point is, little things do matter. They're often strategic in God's overall plan. I'm sure you know, termites do far more damage in this country than earthquakes. Did you know that matches are more, far more destructive than volcanoes? Little things can have a powerful impact. Once there was a man, I read about him, his name was Robert Shepard. He escaped from a jail in Charleston, South Carolina using dental floss. True story. He climbed a fence using a rope that he had made by braiding together 48 strands of mint-flavored wax dental floss. Hey, your life may be a single strand of dental floss, but who knows how God may twist it together in circumstances and with people to use you mightily. I love this poem. Shamgar had an ox goad. David had a sling. Samson had a jawbone. Rahab had a string. Mary had some ointment. Aaron had a rod. Dorcas had a needle. All were used by God. And then verse 10 concludes, For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. A plumb is a carpenter's tool. It's a string weighted on one end with a stone. Drop it down the side of a wall and it shows if the wall is level or not. Recall in chapter 3 we saw a stone with seven eyes. It was the Messiah. And here, what Zechariah is doing is after telling us how not to measure spiritual success, it's not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit, 
He now instructs us on how we can determine if a ministry is on the level. How do you do it? You stack it up against the stone. And who's the stone? The stone is Jesus, the Messiah. So, is the ministry reflecting and glorifying Jesus? Is Jesus being preached in worship? Is his love and kindness and gentleness on display? Are mercy and truth joined together in the ministry as they are in Jesus? This is how you recognize whether the ministry is on, a, on the level. Does it reflect Jesus? Zachariah is saying the name and the nature of Jesus is the plumb line by which we measure spiritual success. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at the left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Zechariah goes back to the two trees alongside the menorah and the receptacles that pipe the olive oil. Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. God does his work not by man's might or power, but by his spirit, and yet he still involves people. He uses people anointed by the Holy Spirit. How do you overcome an obstacle and complete the practical and provide a spectacle that gives God glory? How do you do it? You be a receptacle of the Holy Spirit. You never get drained if you stay under the drip of God's Spirit. In Zechariah's day, these two olive trees were two people. They were Joshua the priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Here they're referred to as anointed ones. Literally in the Hebrew, it's sons of oil. That's what I want to be known as, a son of oil. I want to be known as a person anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, this verse also speaks later on of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. During the great tribulation, two men will come and hold the earth accountable. And John refers to them with the language of Zechariah. He calls them the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Apparently, Zechariah 4 is a dual prophecy. It speaks of two men in the past, but also of two in the future. But for Zechariah, the date is February the, 19th, February the 15th, 519 B.C. It's still nighttime. And this is shaping up to be a long, long night for the prophet. He's had five dreams. The good news is, is that they've all been comforting dreams until this fifth. These last three dreams are dire warnings to Israel. Chapter 5. Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Whenever we go to the beach, a common sight you always see at the beach are the airplanes pulling the advertising banners behind them. Basically, Zachariah sees one of these banners without the airplane. And the scroll is huge. A cubit was the distance from the tip of the king's elbow to the tip of his big finger. 
about 18 inches. That makes this flying scroll 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. It looked like a magic carpet flying across the sky. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. This scroll has writing on both sides. And it advertises God's judgment. On the one side, it speaks of thievery. On the other side, of perjury. The Jews had taken what didn't belong to them, and then they had lied about it. And the fact that God's judgment was printed and advertised for all the world to see must have been sobering. A flying scroll gave the impression that judgment would come swiftly. This was a scroll on the roll. Verse 4. And I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. This was a magic carpet you didn't want adorning the floor of your house. For where this scroll lands, it brings about a curse on both the liar and the thief. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. Now here's Zechariah's seventh vision. The prophet sees a woman sitting in a basket. The Hebrew word translated basket is the word ephoth. It was the equivalent of about 32 quarts. It was a measurement. And thus this basket that Zechariah sees is about the size of a bushel basket. He also said, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Think of a genie in a bottle or a woman in a basket. But understand, this woman is not a godly woman. This is not the girl you want your son to date. No, we're told. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. This girl gets introduced. This is wickedness. This woman was a real basket case, I got to tell you. Her name is wickedness. She's incurably evil. And she wants to jump out of the basket and spread her sin and rebellion. This is why the angel has to stuff her back into the basket. And he seals the top with a heavy lid. It's made of lead. Understand, in ancient times, the ephoth was a Hebrew symbol for business, for commerce, and for trade. And this has led some Bible scholars to interpret this female basket case, this girl of greed, this girl of covetousness, as associated with business. The wickedness that she spreads is wicked business practices, greed and deception, and covetousness. You see, before the Jews were deported to Babylon, they were an agrarian people. They were all farmers. They earned their living off the land. But in Babylon, the Jews learned the arts of banking and finance and trade. And the Jews grew quite successful in banking and in merchandising. 
Even today, Jews have a reputation for being good at business and for liking money. Reminds me of the Jewish shopkeeper. He was on his deathbed. His family had all gathered around him for his last few moments with the father of the family. The old man could barely see who was standing there. He said, honey, are you there? His wife replied, yes, dear, I'm here. David, are you here? Yes, Dad, I'm here. Sarah, are you here? Yes, Daddy, I'm here. Samuel, my youngest, are you here? Yes, Pops, I'm here. Suddenly, an angry look appeared on the old man's face as he looked to his family and he said, Well, then, if all of you are here, who in the world's mind in the store? That's a funny joke. That's good. That's bad. There's nothing wrong with making a buck, and I certainly applaud Jewish industriousness, but a preoccupation with business can cause the best person to lose focus. We all need to make a living, but when profit becomes your bottom line, when profit's your only concern, business ends up your downfall. This is what happened to the Jews in Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem, worshipers of the almighty bottom line. Greed and exploitation and deception had become business as usual, and God was not pleased. And I think the same has happened in America. This past week, I was watching Tucker Carlson. He was interviewing a critic of Harvard Business School. Author Duff McDonald notes that the graduates of Harvard Business School, they only are concerned, as he put it, with the bottom line. And he noted how that there are now 70,000 Harvard graduates running the American economy. These people, their only sense of responsibility is to their shareholders, to increasing the bottom line. They have no sense of accountability to their country or to the environment or to the general public or to a sense of morality or ethics, let alone to God. Today, business is all about making a buck. The love of money has captured our hearts, and it's leading us down an evil path, just as it did these post-exile Jews. God wanted Israel to be a spiritual people, not a material people. And that's why the angels slam the lid back on the basket, and they take this old girl back to Babylon. It all gets summed up in the ultimate Jewish dilemma. Have you heard of this? The ultimate Jewish dilemma. Dilemma. You know what it is? A free ham sandwich. A free ham sandwich. The ultimate Jewish dilemma. What does one do? Save your money or stay kosher? Save your money or obey the laws of God? I mean, what do you do? A free ham sandwich. This is the ultimate Jewish dilemma. You'll get it eventually. Well, the Jews returning from Babel, they were corrupted by Babylonian business. They would have uh, chose the free ham sandwich. Sadly, it was the sin that stuck. Verse 9, then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Now, here's the only place I know of in Scripture where an angel appears in the form of a woman. Usually, angels materialize as men. And whether these two angels are good angels or demons, we're really not sure. Notice they have the wings of a stork. A 
According to the law of Moses, a stork was an unclean animal. That would imply that these are demons rescuing the woman named Wickedness and taking her back to Babylon. On the other hand, the Hebrew word stork means faithful one. That might imply that these are good angels banishing Wickedness back to her home in Babel. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. Notice God wasn't just concerned about getting the Jews out of Babylon. He also wanted to get Babylon out of Judah. And thus they take this basket back to Shinar. And the the unethical business practices that were associated with it. I think also God's goal is not just to get Christians out of the world, but it's also to get the world out of the church. Here's a lesson for believers. God's plan for salvation includes both sanctification as well as justification. Certainly in Christ, we've been forgiven. We have been restored to God. In the heavenly ledgers, your sin has been blotted out, and the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account. But God's work doesn't end there. Salvation also, it doesn't just impact your record, it also purifies your heart. It has a judicial work in heaven, but it also has an effectual work in us. God cuts out the evil influences in our lives. He plants within us His Spirit. He gives us a new nature. In Christ, we're justified before God, but we're also purified in our hearts, and our lives should reflect both. God brought the Jews out of Babylon, but He also brings Babylon out of the Jews. He transports wickedness back to Babel, and He wants to drive the evil from us. Yet there may be an even deeper meaning here in Zechariah's seventh vision of the basket and the woman flown back to Babylon. In Isaiah 13 and 14... Jeremiah 50 and 51, Revelation 17 and 18, we learn that one of the events that will occur in the last days before Jesus' return is the destruction of Babylon. Understand, in a sense, the Bible is a tale of two cities. God's capital has always been Jerusalem. It was the center of His plan throughout the Old Testament. It was His footstool, a place where He revealed His presence. But Satan has also had a capital. Babylon was the seat of rebellion and organized opposition against God. You remember the first global revolt against God occurred where? In the plains of Shinar, in Babylon. Babel was the birthplace of paganism and idolatry and astrology and the occult. Its infamous tower, the Tower of Babel, was no doubt an astrological observatory and a temple to false gods. Nimrod, the Babylonian leader, was a type of the Antichrist. He captured men's souls and he organized a kingdom in direct defiance to the commands of God. Yet over the centuries, the Babylonian cult moved its operation away from the land of Babylon or Shinar. It's interesting, when Babylon fell to the Medes in 536 B.C., the pagan priests of Babel, they relocated their operation to Asia Minor and to the city of Pergamos. Then later still, they moved to Italy and to the capital of Rome. Tragically, in Rome, 
many of the Babylonian practices became intertwined with Roman Catholicism. Did you know that the worship of Mary, the celibacy of priests, the praying to the saints, these all have Babylonian origins, pagan origins? In Revelation 17, we see a mystery Babylon, as she's called, a false religious system occupying a city on seven hills, which has traditionally and idiomatically been associated with Rome. Apparently, the apostate religion of the last days is linked to Rome and by inference to Catholicism. In Revelation 18, we're shown the demise of a commercial and financial empire known as Babylon. John sees its fiery destruction as the world mourns. Here, Zechariah sees two angels flying the woman in the basket back to Babel. They sit her on the pedestal. She's being returned to the ancient base of operation. I believe all this is in preparation for the final showdown between God and this rebellious world. It could be that divine judgment won't come until the world's evil commercial and religious systems return to their birthplace. To Babylon. A literal Babel will one day be destroyed. I believe the land of Shinar still plays a role in last day's prophecies. Well, Zechariah sees his eighth vision in chapter 6. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked. And behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. Most scholars identify these mountains as Jerusalem's eastern mountains, the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount that stand adjacent to one another. The Temple Mount also goes by the name of Mount Moriah. Four chariots are seen streaming through the Kidron Valley, the valley that cuts between these two mountains. In Scripture, that valley is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat means Jehovah is judge. And it's in this valley that the prophet Joel says that God will judge the nations of the world in the final battle. Joel chapter 3 verse 2 tells us what will happen one day. I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel. Most folks think of Armageddon or Mount Megiddo as the site of the final battle. But it's really just the staging area. That valley stretching from Megiddo northward is really just the staging area for the battle that will end all battles. The actual fighting occurs in the valley between the two mountains in Jerusalem. And notice these two mountains are depicted as mountains of bronze. Bronze or brass is a scriptural symbol for judgment. Bronze has a high melting point. It's a metal that withstands heat. Bronze implements were used in the offering of the sacrifices. Thus, bronze was synonymous with God's fire or God's judgment. Notice verse 2 continues. With the first chariot were red horses. With the second chariot, black horses. With the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot, dappled horses, strong steeds. And with this eighth vision, Zacharias' visions come full circle. You remember in vision one, he saw four horses that ride out into the world. They report back that everyone is at ease. Everyone is at rest. 
The world is oblivious to their sin and to their selfishness. The world has a hard heart and is spiritually calloused. That was their report. Now again, we find four groups of horses. But this time, they're pulling chariots. They've gone back. They've gotten hooked up, harnessed up for war. These are war chariots. The horses of chapter 1 surveyed the world's sin, while the horses of chapter 6 will slay the world's sinners. And in this eighth vision, the judgment of God comes riding on the wind. And it's interesting that these are the same four horsemen that the Apostle John sees on the Isle of Patmos 600 years later. In Revelation 6, John tells us he saw these same four horsemen. The white horse was ridden by the Antichrist, bringing a false peace. There was also the red horse of war, the black horse of famine, the pale horse of death. Here Zechariah sees the same last day's riders who will execute God's judgment on this cold and wicked world. Verse 4. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. And the dappled are going toward the south country. The word dappled means pale. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. We know the Holy Spirit is grieved because of our sin. Thus he finds rest once sin has been judged and God's righteousness has been vindicated. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Helda, Tobiah, and Jedediah, who have come from Babylon and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, until now, everything that's been going on has been in Zechariah's dream. But now the dreams are over, and the dreamer becomes a doer. Three Jews have returned from Babel with gold and silver. Zechariah is to take these medals and he's to fashion a crown for the high priest. This crown has a symbolic purpose. The ceremony of crowning was not for Joshua. I'm sure he was honored to sort of serve as a stand-in, but he was not the subject of the ceremony. The crowning of the high priest was predictive of the ministry of the Messiah. Reminds me, I'm on a roll with these jokes tonight, so I should try one more. Reminds me of the little Jewish town. It was situated deep in the woods. The Jews were isolated, and so they feared that when the Messiah come, they might miss him. And so they built a tower, and they kept a watchman, keep the eyes open for the Messiah. One day, a stranger walked by. The watchman greeted him. The stranger asked him, he said, what do you do up in the tower? The watchman replied, I watch and I wait for the Messiah. The stranger asked again, well, how much do you like your job? I'm sure it doesn't pay much. To which the watchman replied, I like my job. It's true it doesn't pay much, but at least it's steady work. And the same could be said of all the Jews. 
For centuries, the Jews have watched and have waited for their Messiah. God promised David a shoot or a branch to sprout from his family tree to one day rule over his people Israel. The branch would establish God's everlasting kingdom and would be its everlasting king. The prophets of Israel reiterated this promise over and over again. And by the first century A.D., the nation's anticipation was primed. It was one of the greatest tragedies of history that the Jews were so proud and so hard-hearted and so self-righteous that they missed their Messiah when he finally appeared. Zechariah was appointed to pave the way for the Messiah by fashioning this symbolic crown for the high priest and by placing it on his head. For he says, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. This is laced with messianic prediction. Now notice the phrase, Behold the man. Or in Latin, Echi homo. These are the exact words that Pilate used to introduce his prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, to the bloodthirsty mob in Jerusalem. Pilate was quoting Zechariah, Echi homo, behold the man. Pilate used this phrase to introduce the Messiah, the suffering servant. It's ironic here, Zechariah uses the same words to introduce Messiah, the conquering king. And notice the man who's being introduced is called the branch. Again, this Old Testament idiom for the Messiah. He is a shoot or the offspring of David's royal family. He is the man whose name is the branch. The emphasis being on his humanity. Messiah will be a man. Notice too, from his place he shall branch out. Isaiah 53 verse 2 said of the Messiah, He shall grow up in a a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. In other words, he's a branch that grows out of dry ground. How can that be? He grows strong and tall in a barren place, in the midst of a wilderness. And this was true of Jesus. He was planted in a wicked, spiritually barren world, and he drew his nourishment from heaven. He lived a sinless life. Jesus is a testimony that a person can bloom in a barren place. If you sink your roots deep in God, despite your surroundings, your surroundings don't matter. If you sink your roots deep in God, you too can flower and sprout spiritually. Not by might, nor by power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord. And then notice the final words of this prophecy. And He shall build the temple of the Lord. At the time, this was Zerubbabel's task. And Zerubbabel was successful to an extent He built a second temple that King Herod would later enlarge. But a third temple is coming. Scripture teaches that in the last days, at the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist will defile the temple. Apparently, it will be rebuilt before the time of the end. Currently, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of planning in Jerusalem of the rebuilding of a Jewish temple. Given the politics, we don't know how it will happen, but it will. For here we're told that the Messiah will build a temple. 
None of the previous temples have been built by the Messiah. And that's the promise here in verse 12. Messiah will build a temple. I believe this happens after Jesus returns. After he judges the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat, he'll build a temple when his kingdom comes. In fact, this is what Ezekiel 40 through 48 was all about. It described the temple that Jesus would construct that will stand for a thousand years. It's the place where we will come and worship him in his millennial kingdom. And remember, Jesus has good experience at building temples. Remember, for the last 2,000 years, he's been building a spiritual temple called the church. After putting up with us, building a literal temple, Bill Breeze. Verse 13. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. This is a fabulous thought. That not only will Jesus be the future temple's architect, he will also be its star attraction. A priest will sit on the throne and bear God's glory. You remember in ancient Israel, there was a clear distinction between church and state, a separation. The king was the civil authority. The priest was the religious authority. And God's law forbid that the two be intertwined. That's why when King Uzziah tried to be a priest, God judged him swiftly. You remember the story? Uzziah, he got bored with government matters. He got the big head. He thought it'd be cool to be a worship leader. And so he took on priestly robes, and he overstepped God's bounds. He assumed a position that God didn't give him. He entered the temple to burn incense. When the priest at the time, Azariah, heard what he was doing, he raced in to stop him, but it was too late. The scripture tells us Uzziah became furious. And while he was angry with the priests, Leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord. And King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. Obviously, the Lord was extremely serious about maintaining a separation between kings and priests. And this is what makes Messiah's ministry so unique. For he will be both a king and a priest. Only the Messiah will have the right to sit on the throne and burn incense before God. The New Testament calls Jesus King of Kings and our great high priest. In him, the two offices will converge. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobiah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Some scholars believe that this crown that was made by Zechariah was still in the temple in Jesus' day. It was lost in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. And there are people who consider Joshua's crown to be synonymous with the scepter mentioned by Jacob. You remember back in Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob had made the prediction, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is another name for Messiah. It could be that this crown, like the scepter, a sign of royalty, was in the temple until Jesus presented himself to Israel and was rejected. Perhaps Jesus will wear this crown, made by Zechariah, when he returns and reigns from Jerusalem. It was when the 
scepter departed from Judah, that was the sign that the Messiah had already come, and he had. Jesus was already in Nazareth. And then in verse 15, Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. When Jesus returns, Gentile believers from all over the world will come to Jerusalem and build the temple. We read in Ezra that in Zerubbabel's day, the Jews' Gentile neighbors were trying to sabotage the work of rebuilding the temple. When Jesus comes, they'll pitch in and they'll help. 